Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Let's start with a quick thought experiment. When I say the words COVID-19, what emoji comes to mind? Is it an exhaustion face, a big thumbs down, a shrug, an outpouring of tears? We've been dealing with the effects of the novel coronavirus for two plus years now. And while exhaustion and tears and thumbs down and maybe even the occasional shrug are all certainly reasonable emotions regarding COVID, I'm going to add one more, thankfulness. It's definitely not thankfulness for COVID itself, but rather thankfulness for the development of new vaccine technology that was developed in record time and has proven dramatically effective in preventing hospitalization and death. In fact, in the year after the vaccine was first introduced in December 2020, more than 4.3 billion people received inoculation, and a study just published in The Lancet estimated that the vaccine saved 20 million lives worldwide. So the vaccines are remarkably effective and remarkably safe, but in the end, that doesn't really matter if people don't get the vaccine. Making sure everyone eligible in the U.S. received inoculation has been a priority from the beginning. But there have been worries from the start that certain groups, particularly communities of color, might fall behind in vaccination rates. On today's show, we'll learn about two organizations in the South that have worked hard to bring vaccines to people in their communities. And we'll talk about why focusing on health equity and making sure that communities of color have access to vaccines is so important. One of our guides along the way will be my good colleague, Leandra. Can you introduce yourself real quick? My name is Leandra Lacey. I'm a training and technical assistance specialist within the Research to Action Lab at the Urban Institute. Leandra helps to lead a project at Urban focused on vaccine equity. But what does that mean? You know, when we're looking at vaccine equity, I think it's particularly important to make sure that we're exploring what's happening in communities of color because of the increased risk of COVID infection for a lot of people within these communities. And that's for a couple of reasons. It could be just risk of exposure to COVID due to the types of jobs that people of color are more likely to work. It could be just the nature of the job where they cannot take off of work as easily to go get a vaccination. Things like that really impact how communities of color can access the vaccine and how often they have uptake. And then we know that the vaccine is our best protection against severe illness, hospitalization, and death. So when we know that, you know, the science is there, we know that communities of color are often more at risk for infection. We really have to make sure that we're making sure these communities have what they need, that the vaccine is available there. And all of this is addressed in the Partnering for Vaccine Equity program. Funded by the CDC, the program addresses racial and ethnic disparities in adult COVID-19 and influenza vaccination. Urban provides technical assistance to 29 community-based organizations to improve vaccine confidence and coverage among adults of color. Leandra is the technical assistance lead for 20 of those organizations. From site visits and Zoom calls, she's learned a lot about the challenges to increasing confidence around vaccines. One challenge has been misinformation. Especially on social media, word of mouth, 
misinformation can spread very quickly, especially on social media, about the side effects of the vaccine or the contents of the vaccine, different aspects of it. But because we don't know the origin of where these kind of posts or videos start, it can be hard to wrangle them in and really figure out how to address it. But beyond misinformation, most of the time, the issue is access. It's not just about someone being fearful about being vaccinated. Sometimes maybe they do, but they just don't have access to it in their area. Maybe they live in a very rural area. Maybe they don't have transportation to get to the closest vaccine site. A lot of these factors are intertwined and can impact somebody's ability to get vaccinated. And the reality is that convenience is a big part of vaccine accessibility. So whether that's the timing of when you have a vaccine clinic, for instance, whether that's the location, really thinking about what works best for your community. If you have a lot of people in your community that get off at four o'clock, having a vaccine clinic from nine to five won't necessarily work because you also have to consider childcare and folks having to pick up their children from daycare and school. So making sure that times are convenient, meeting people literally where they are is really important. For instance, at a busy intersection in Los Angeles, if you can already have your vaccine clinic there and people already will be shopping at the farmer's market, it really works for people and it's convenient for them. Another example I can think of is an organization in New York City. We actually did a site visit with them and we observed one of their vaccine clinics that actually was taking place at a month. But they were very intentional about the timing of this event knowing that people will be worshiping, you know, in the Islamic Center and then would be led out and having the vaccine clinic match the time that those worshiping would be out of the worship service and having folks there that also spoke Arabic. And if you work at El Buen Samaritano in Austin, Texas, you'll plan clinics alongside holiday, cultural and community events. When the vaccine became available for children's We invited the entire family to come and get vaccinated. We were organizing the vaccine events with the theme events. We had a turkey event for Christmas. We have a turkey event for Thanksgiving. In January, the Latino community tends to celebrate the king cake. So we offer king cake for everybody that was coming to to Lombard. And not as an incentive, just as a motivation. Make it fun that you come here and you have fun while you get the vaccine. And all these efforts have been the reason why we're continuing to see between 250 to 300 people coming to our vaccine events. That's Luis Garcia. He's the director of technology and analytics at El Buen Samaritano, one of the community-based organizations in the CDC program. For vaccine distribution, his team serves 52 different zip codes, and he's seen how it has impacted all of those communities. The pandemic just highlighted the already existing disparities in the Latino community. That's the community that we serve. We have seen the hospitalization rates, death rates, the caretaker loss in Latino families going to the top. We also saw or we've seen the uh, negative economic impact, a negative academic uh, education impact on the youth, as well as the mental health and isolation challenges. We've seen hesitancy in the community that we serve, the issue that we're facing with the COVID-19 vaccine. It's that access, education, and trust more than the hesitancy itself. We started learning that the people that it was uh, eligible to receive the vaccine were facing a lot of barriers, like technology barriers, 
the language barriers, the access barriers. Luis and his team used a data-driven approach to figure out how best to serve their communities. We have conducted over 1,500 assessments to our clients, pre-vaccine and post-vaccine. For those that uh, haven't been vaccinated, we want to learn about why. For those that are getting vaccinated, we want to learn why. Why do you wait so long? What were preventing you from uh, getting the vaccine? And we learned people didn't have the access because the vaccine clinics are uh, different hours. They, the Latino community that we serve, they work from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. So at 7 p.m. on a Friday, there's nowhere to get the vaccination. Through their surveys, they learned that just because vaccines are available does not mean that people have real access to them. When we map our efforts, when we, we use the data to understand the pattern of where the vaccines are going, it's not a coincidence that most of the people that it's getting vaccinated now, it's coming from areas where there's only one medical home. There's only one AFQHC, a federal qualified health center. Most of the people is coming from those areas rather than where we have uh, six, seven hospitals, three clinics, four urgent cares. Of course, we're not getting people coming from those areas. The zip codes that only have uh, one uh, supermarket or a butcher store or a dollar general store. Those clients are the ones that come here to get the vaccine. The areas where there's no transportation. Another community-based organization in Jackson, Mississippi, also conducted focus groups and found the same thing. We did like small focus groups in each of the communities that we serve to actually talk with residents who lived there, most who had been vaccinated, but who were vaccinated kind of at various points. So people who were early adopters, as folks say, to folks who by the end of last year maybe just had their first shot. So we talked with our residents to kind of learn about some of those things that made them hesitant. That's Trishika Melvin. She works as the Advocacy, Training, and Power Building Director at Springboard to Opportunities in Jackson, Mississippi. When vaccines started to kind of roll out, at least here in Mississippi, they were available at specific locations during specific time of day. And I think for some of the communities that we serve, access to transportation to get to some of those locations was a whole thing, as well as like timing. If they were able to secure a ride when the vaccine being offered aligned with their availability, would they have to like navigate getting their children there or all of these different things? And this was before there were vaccines available for children as well. Those were kind of two main areas that we recognize as barriers early on was access to transportation to get to some of the places that provided vaccines, as well as kind of the availability and kind of timing of vaccines. Both Trishika and Luis also shared that misinformation and medical mistrust fueled vaccine hesitancy in Austin and Jackson. I think the realities of vaccine kind of misinformation across social media also played a huge part in people being unsure of whether or not that was something that they wanted. We serve low-income, predominantly Black communities, so there are naturally like a long history of ways in which Black communities have not fared well as it relates to government and health. And so there was that natural, like, is this something that we can actually trust that was pretty consistent? 
this happened to my friend that my friend's cousin told me that their mother-in-law had a reaction and the misinformation and the trust again most of the places here at least here in, in this area you need an id when you go get the vaccine and that's the first barrier that it's for our clients when you're asked to submit a official id that's the first thing that you stop and you just walk away that's what we've been learning from the assessments that we've been conducting for the community that we serve sometimes they don't have a medical home they don't go to the doctor for regular checkups so all the access to information they have, it's like I mentioned, it's either the neighbor, the friend, or what they look on social media. So we provide access to medical professionals and home when they can just come, no appointment necessary, no ID requirement. By providing the access to a medical professional, they can just come and ask questions and get the clarifications on some specific issues that are maybe preventing them from making the decision and receive the vaccine. In order to combat misinformation, Luis says it's all about one thing, trust. We have worked a lot on education and spreading the word about the vaccine facts. We know we have the trust of the community. So coming from a trust source, it has helped a lot. The people listen to who they trust, but it's not uh, coming from us. And in Jackson, it's coming from community members. At Springboard, Trishika developed a vaccine education ambassador program. Residents applied and two were selected in each community to serve as ambassadors. Springboard now serves eight communities across Mississippi and Alabama. As I mentioned, we had focus groups in eight communities. So we kind of took the feedback kind of categorize it by some of the needs that we heard, some of the questions that we felt were pretty consistent that people were asking across communities, and even some of the suggestions that we heard from communities of how to engage or how they would have liked to have been engaged. So from our feedback, one of the things that we developed was a vaccine education ambassador program. I was intentional about calling it a vaccine education ambassador versus just a vaccine ambassador with the importance of recognizing that due to a lot of the misinformation or lack of information generally around the vaccine in our communities. According to Trishika, ambassadors are there to help create conversations with their neighbors around the vaccine. Those conversations are then used to identify concerns so they could tailor resources and meet community needs. We also develop kind of other like materials, flyers and different things. And we, I think, <laughs> thoroughly equipped our vaccine education ambassadors with materials to support them because they were also just community members who maybe didn't have extensive background in the vaccine, but knew their experience. And we tried to lift that up as their expertise. Like, you know, kind of what your journey was, you know, what your story with the vaccine is. And like, that's what's real for people. We help develop trainings for our vaccine education ambassadors. And so really kind of walk them through ways and tools that they could engage with their peers in ways that made them comfortable. So they had access to text scripts or phone call scripts or even just how to start a conversation, like walking around your neighborhood with someone about the vaccine. Like Luis said, people listen to who they trust. And these ambassadors are trusted messengers who may be more effective at addressing vaccine hesitancy than those outside the community. 
The research speaks to trusted messengers being more effective at helping to kind of address vaccine hesitancy or make people more open. That was definitely something that we recognize both with better equipping our staff who are located in communities with more supports, but then also in our process of hiring vaccine ambassadors who were from the community, who lived in the community, who knew their communities and could be someone that's speaking to them that they see every day and saw prior to their role as an ambassador. The goal wasn't necessarily to change people's minds, but rather stop the spread of misinformation and provide accurate information so residents could make informed decisions. As I mentioned earlier, we recognize that pretty consistently people are saying folks want to see and want to hear more people who have gotten the vaccine and are okay, or like just have conversations generally where there is a different perspective to the vaccine. Because I think a lot of times we were hearing that people were either getting the social media misinformation wave, or they were getting, get the vaccine with no real context outside of that. And from a lot of the conversations Trashika ambassadors had in the communities, they learned most people were not set in their opinions. For a lot of the conversations that we had in the communities, we were learning that some of those folks, a lot of those folks rather, weren't super anti-vaccine. So I think we try to have that approach with our ambassadors as well. Of You know, you don't have to go in assuming that the person that you're talking to is like never trying to get the vaccine. Rather go in assuming that they are, but they just need to get to a place where they have their own reason and they feel comfortable. Luis and Leandra agree. They might never change their mind about receiving the vaccine because with the cases decreasing and the guidelines getting less strict, people is just believing that the pandemic is going away. So I think that's where we can keep just working in providing access, education, and keep building on the trust more than the hesitancy. Building trust is so key. That could look a lot of different ways. That could be being consistent with your outreach, Maybe having a standing clinic or outreach time so your community members know that you'll be there this day at this time each week. Or just actively listening to your community members when they're bringing up concerns about vaccination, being an active listener, asking them questions, really getting to the root of their hesitancy. Addressing vaccine hesitancy and improving vaccine competency is not an easy task. It takes a lot of time, commitment, and patience, but it can really pay off. So for community-based organizations looking to delve into this work, here's four big takeaways to consider from Leandra, Luis, and Trishika. One, data collection is essential. It's a key to learn from the community, know where the concentrations of uh, unvaccinated individuals live, Once you know that, make the move of what is the best time and location to get them vaccinated. All these data collection system can give you all this precious data in order to prepare the way that you set up your vaccine events or your vaccine outreach. Two, listen to your community. That I think has been the key for us is actually going to the communities that we're serving and asking them, (laughs) like not assuming that they don't have the answers, but like truly knowing that they do and allowing that to guide the work that you develop. Listen to the clients, conduct assessments, 
learn from what they say. It's not rocket science. This strategy, it's successful because we start listening to the clients. That's all you have to do. Let the clients tell you what they need in order to get the vaccine. Three, engage with trusted members in the community. Trusted messengers are important partners in addressing vaccine hesitancy. Really figure out who are the people that your community members listen to and that they value their opinion. That could be local radio and TV personalities. I mentioned earlier how faith leaders and local business owners are some examples as well. Elders, for instance, are highly valued and listened to culturally in your community. You know, talk to elders in community, get them on board with being trusted messengers. We've seen this model of vaccine ambassadors for a lot of the organizations. And these ambassadors are those influential messengers in their community. And four, partnerships are crucial. If you don't have a bank of uh, individuals or a group of people that know or trust your organization, then go and partner with organizations who do. That's definitely something that we have learned from the past. There's strength in numbers. So how can you maintain the existing connections that you already have? Where can you form the new connection? And I would encourage people to even think outside of the box because it doesn't necessarily have to be people focused in health. If there's a food pantry in your area, you can partner with them. We have an organization that does that type of work where they partner with their local food pantries to do food distribution, which is an opportunity to then talk about the vaccine as well while people are waiting for their food. Here's Leandra with a closing thought on how she sees the work on vaccine equity as part of the larger tapestry of strengthening the social determinants of health in communities of color. I think COVID has really exposed a lot of the fault lines and cracks in our healthcare and medical system. These cracks and fault lines were already there. They existed already. But COVID has shined a light on all of these cracks in our system and who's falling through those cracks. So I think that's why it begs this urgency in this moment in time. If we want to make sure that everybody has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. So not only is it a racial equity issue for me, but also a health equity issue. And I think of health equity in the same way as racial equity that, you know, everybody has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. So that involves removing a lot of obstacles, not only in health, but I see it tied to other areas like housing and transportation, again, income, employment, education. So they're all intertwined. I don't think we can address one without the other. So that's our show. Big thank you to everyone we spoke with to make this episode possible. Leandra Lacey, Luis Garcia, and Trishika Melvin. And another big thanks to superstar producer for this episode, Jacinth Jones. Finally, thank you to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for their support of the Partnering for Vaccine Equity Project in this episode. As always, our music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team and my two vaccinated children who continue to be co-producers. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.